All right, Mark 7, 13 is the first verse I wanna turn to. I wanna read this real quick. It says, Jesus says this. He says, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Jesus earlier in Mark 7 says that you have been teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. I wanna say this before we go any further. There are good and there are bad traditions. Jesus is not resistant to all tradition. As a matter of fact, there's so much of what we do in church that is tradition. Even the Eucharist, even communion, which we took today is a part of tradition. I don't think Jesus came to get rid of communion. Can you say amen? So there are good traditions and there are bad traditions. Bad traditions are the traditions that are man-made. It's when we take God's commandments that are holy all by themselves and then we add to them our own thoughts, our own intentions, our own agenda to what God has already clearly said. Colossians 2 and 8 says, See that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to what? Human tradition. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 15 says that there are traditions that the apostles actually handed down that are good. Don't let go, they say, of these traditions that we have given you. They were either taught to you by us or they were in our letters. The Bible teaches us that the book of the Bible is complete. The chapters are finished. That anyone who adds to or takes away from this book is accursed. So what, what we've learned is that God has a word and men have opinions, right? God has a word that is established. It's been delivered to us. It's been, it's been taken care of by many tear, caretakers over the centuries and in our hands today and in our, on our laptops and on our iPads and on our phones today, we have, we have the complete word of God. So if we are to add to these traditions and add to these commandments, we are stepping into human tradition. And so I want to make that distinction today because I don't want you to think that Jesus came and said, ah, you know that whole, you know that whole law, ah, forget that. No other gods before me, ah, you can have a couple. Thou shalt not steal. Ah, I wasn't really serious. You know, grace, grace, marvelous grace, you know. Thou shalt not kill. No big deal in the kingdom. Not a big deal. I'm not worried about it anymore, you know. Tradition. <laughs> I don't see anybody going to jail like, hey, 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 Jesus said no traditions. No, you, you still can't kill. You still can't steal. You still can't have other gods before me. You still can't covet your neighbor's things and possessions. Come on, somebody. Like the law of God is still applicable to our lives today. It's important to our lives today. Can somebody please say amen? amen. Now, keeping it doesn't save us, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Jesus didn't come to, to get rid of the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And now the Bible teaches that the Spirit of God writes the law on our hearts and he helps us keep the commands of God. Is there anybody thankful for the Holy Spirit that helps you do what God has asked you to do? Amen. So these are good traditions. These are good things. Now, now, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna kind of switch gears because what I'm trying to talk to you about today is we're gonna go back to last week. We talked about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Bible says in Mark chapter one, verses 14 through 15, it says, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That literally means that the kingdom of God has come near. I love that. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Change your mind and believe in the gospel. We are going from a law-based living to a grace-based living. That doesn't mean that the law is still not important in our lives. It just means that the motivation for doing things for God is not to try to make God love us, to try to make God pleased with us, to try to keep God's wrath 
off of us. The point now is that Jesus has come to fulfill all of the law and the prophets, and by grace you are saved, not of works. Come on, somebody. Is anybody thankful that you're saved by grace, not of works? The Spirit of God comes on the inside of you, and that gospel comes alive on the inside of you. Now you were saved unto good works. You are saved to do good things, to live holy lives. So he says, repent and believe the gospel. And I would say one of the hardest things for people to really do is believe the gospel. It's very difficult to believe the gospel sometimes because of all of the human traditions that have been added to the gospel. (laughs) Well, and I love what Jesus says. He says, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is upon you. What that means is a kingdom has a king. What Jesus is saying to us is the king is here. I know you've been waiting and I know you've been longing for this day. I know you've been waiting for this moment. As a matter of fact, Jesus teaches one time in the temple and he reads all of these different scriptures and he says, this day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your eyes. King is here. The king has come. I I want you to know that that no matter what happened on November the 3rd, we still have a king. No matter what happens the next election, we still have a king. No matter what happens in 2024, we still have a king. Our king is here. The one we've been longing for, the one we've been waiting for, he has come. His name is Jesus. I'm not waiting for anybody else. That's even why the book of Hebrews was written and, and, and the writer of Hebrews would tell the Jewish people, he would say, listen, anyone that's come to that point of salvation and redemption and walks away, you have to understand there remains no more sacrifice for sin. Nobody else is coming. Jesus is it. He's God's final say in the earth. So we have a king. We are not without a king. We are not without A leader, Psalm 118 and 22 says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief corner stone. Not only do we serve a king, but we serve the king of kings. Every president has a king. Every king has a king. His name is Jesus. He is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Luke 1 and 33 says, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Aren't you thankful that there's not an election when, it's come, when it comes to God? Nobody gets to vote him in. Nobody gets to vote him out. He's God all by himself. He's God from the beginning. He's God right now, and he will always be God. Of his kingdom, there shall be no end. All nations will end. United States will cease to be. Russia will cease to be. China will cease to be. Japan will cease to be, but of his kingdom there will be no end. There's coming a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we might as well start bowing our knee right now. Choose to bow now. But the condition of men is that we have always looked for someone else. The Jews were condemned in many ways by Jesus because he came and he visited them and they missed their hour of visitation. How many times has the king come and said the kingdom is here and we didn't want it that way? That's why we have to talk about understanding Jesus because we have to recognize why Jesus came to really understand everything that Jesus meant because the why behind His coming has everything to do with our going, why we exist, why we do what we do, why we say what we say, why we worship how we worship, why we sing what we sing, why we preach what we preach. So your king is here, but we've always looked for another king. And when we put our hope in another king or a leader or a president, God takes that personally. God's like Michael Jordan when it comes to the Pistons. He takes it personally. 
I don't know if you've seen that meme about Michael Jordan and how he takes everything personally. But God takes that personally because we are rejecting him when we are looking for someone else. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, God's people are living in a, in a way where God is their king and God has established judges and prophets to help lead and direct them. But God is their king. But they begin to look at other nations. And as they're looking at other nations, they, they start to want what the other nations have. And the Bible says that Samuel is coming in to the end of his life in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And as he's coming to the end of his life, the people come to Samuel and they're like, hey, listen, uh, we want a king. We want you to choose a king for us. And Samuel is offended at this because he, he thinks that the people are rejecting him as their prophetic leader. So he goes and he talks to God about it and he says, God, the people have asked for a king and God says, Samuel, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. When you look for, when you look for leadership outside of God, when you look for someone to be your king, your leader, your president outside of God, God takes it as rejection of him. Doesn't mean that God doesn't use leaders and use prophets and use presidents and use kings. Doesn't mean that. It just means that my hope is not in them. And on November 3rd, where your hope was, was revealed. Because there was, on that day, many of you thought America's going to hell. And many of you thought America has been saved. And neither was true. Our king has already come. He showed up over 2,000 years ago. He's still alive and well. And he's still serving. So the people rejected God. And, and now I want to switch gears again. So... Let me kind of summarize where we are. We are in a place where we're talking about Jesus, who is the tradition breaker. But he didn't come to break his word. He came to break human tradition. For instance, Jesus is asked by people, why aren't your disciples fasting? Or why aren't your disciples washing their hands and, and going through all of the ceremonial things that everybody else goes through? And, and, and Jesus lets them know, this is why they're not washing their hands, because you have made the outside of a person such a big concern, but the inside is dirty. What good is a cup if you've washed the outside, but the inside is dirty? So Jesus is challenging their traditions, and this is why they, they hate him. Not because he's opposed to sin, but because he is opposed to them and what they have turned him into. The most frustrated you see Jesus in the Bible is when you take something that belongs to him and you turn it into something it was never intended to be. When he walks into the temple, he says, you have turned my house into a den of thieves, but my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. You have taken my word, you have taken my house, you have taken my things and you have made them your things. When you make God's things your things, you make them unholy. And there's nothing that frustrates God more than when we take God or we take his things and we turn them into our things. And when, when we manipulate them to our benefit, when, when preachers use the word to manipulate it to their benefit, when, when they use words on giving to make you give so they can get bigger houses and nicer cars. Okay. So, so we find ourselves introduced to Jesus, the tradition breaker. All right? And then we went into this thought about how Jesus is king. Now I want to talk to you out of a story out of Acts 15. I'm laying a foundation. This is all going to come together. I promise. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is, is a really cool story. You, you should read the, books, the book of Acts. 
It's about the birth of the church. It's, it's our history. It's our family. It's, these are our relatives. They, they're teaching us and showing us how church should be and what the church should look like and how the church should operate and how the church began and what the, what the, what the focus was and what the intention was. And in Acts chapter 15, they're having a discussion and all of the tradition keepers are gathered in Jerusalem because they've got an issue with the Gentiles that are being saved. Now, Judaism and the Jews were not extremely receptive to the gospel, but there were a few people who had received Jesus and they were still trying to hold on to their religious activity, their man-made tradition, and they were still trying to follow Jesus. And they were frustrated because all these Gentiles were getting saved and these Gentiles had no history in church. There's this wild, rambunctious. I mean, you got Roman guards that are being saved. You got prostitutes that are being saved. You got people that are eating bacon getting saved. I mean, it's bad, it's bad news for the Jews. Just rolling around with pigs and coming to church on Sunday. It just eating a ham sandwich and showing up to the house of God. Like it's, it's a mess and they can't handle it. They're struggling with it. And so what they're doing is they're trying to maintain their tradition. And even some of these traditions that have been instituted by God, but because of Jesus, they have been eliminated, especially ceremonial tradition and the food laws, not the, not the moral law of God, but the ceremonial, the food law, all of those things, and that would be a, a whole message. But, but let, me, let, me get, let me get back to it. So they're having this discussion, and the big issue is circumcision. And they're trying to make these Gentile believers, the males, get circumcised. And these are grown men, and the Gentile guys just aren't having it. And so, <laughs> so Paul, I don't blame them. So Paul and Barnabas... So Paul and Barnabas, they go to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, they start to tell the Jewish leaders about all the Jewish tradition keepers about all of these Gentiles that are being saved and, and, and the, the witness of their salvation. I mean, I mean there's, there's one point where, where, where they begin to, in, in, especially after people start getting baptized in the Holy Spirit and all of this, they're, they're starting to speak in other tongues and they're starting to manifest gifts of the Spirit and, and they're asking them, how do you know they're one of us? How do you know they were saved? And, and the apostles are like, well, they, they, they're doing the same things we did. The same thing that happened to them is, to us is happening that the Spirit of God is coming upon them because they were arguing over whether they, not, they could be baptized in water. So in this story, they're, they're talking about circumcision and they come to an agreement because Paul and Barnabas are there, Paul and Barnabas are, are talking to them, and then all of a sudden in Acts chapter 15, James stands up. And James, if you, if you read any of James' writings, James is the closest thing to a legalist in the New Testament. <laughs> James, faith without works is dead. Paul's like, no, you say by grace, through faith, not of works. Okay, okay. So, so James, who is the closest thing to a legalist you can get, stands up and he says this. He says, listen, this is actually God's doing. It's confirmed by the prophets. And he goes back and he quotes the scripture in the Old Testament. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 and 15, the Bible says this. James stands up and he says, the words of prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, and the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord. Who does these things? Things known from long ago. In other words, James is saying this is a part of God's plan. This is God's idea that these Gentiles would come into the fold. And so they tell him, hey, listen, don't eat meat that has been sacrificed to gods and, and be sexually pure. So they send him a letter and they tell him, like, this is kind of the summary. And he says, this would be beneficial for you. It's not, you're gonna burn in the fiery pit. They just send it, say, this is what God's best is for you. Can I, can I say this to you? That that. God has something better 
than your sin. It's, just, it's not just about this is bad and this is good. It's, it's not this is evil and this, it's, it's more about God has a better thing for you than sexual immorality. The desires that you have in your flesh, God has something better. It's not God's trying to keep something good from you. He's actually trying to deliver something better to you. That was the point of the whole book of Hebrews is the new covenant is better. The thing that God is offering you, it's better. It's better than the old. It's better. And this story is so powerful because when James begins to talk to them about what God is doing, he says, God wants to restore the tabernacle of David. Now there were There were two tabernacles in the Old Testament. There was the tabernacle of Moses and there was the tent of David, tabernacle of David. And then David put plans together and Solomon, his son, built God a a house for worship. But there's something significant in the transition from Moses' tabernacle to David's tent. And I want to show you that today because it's It's the breaking of tradition. When Jesus comes on the scene, the king came preaching, repent, change your mind. If you're going to experience outpouring, if you're going to experience revival, if you're going to experience new levels of God's presence, you're going to have to let go of your human tradition. Now watch this. In, in, in the Bible, you see Moses' tabernacle and David's tabernacle. And there's a, this is a massive moment in Acts chapter 15 because the tabernacle that is chosen by God to be rebuilt is not the tabernacle of Moses, it's the tabernacle of David. There are some pretty big differences between these two tabernacles or tents. The tabernacle of Moses had an outer court, had an inner court, had a most holy place. There was a veil that that kept people from going in to where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that veil uh, could only be passed by by the high priest. Not just anybody could come in. And not even everybody from from the tribe of the Levites, just the high priest. And they had to prepare themselves for days and for weeks and for months. And then once a year, they could actually go back. And the tabernacle of of Moses was was about process, not relationship. It was about daily and yearly animal sacrifices. But David's tent was about relationship. And both of the tents were the house of the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, the seat, the mercy seat, the seat which the king sat on. And so here, James is saying, this is what God wants to do. He wants to rebuild David's temple. The the temple of Moses was restricted. The temple of Moses was about process. The temple of Moses was about sacrifices. The temple of Moses was about, was about perfection. The temple of Moses wasn't, wasn't like David's. The temple, the tent of David's was about worship. David had installed singers all around his tent. David's tent didn't have three different levels that you had to go through to get into the most holy place. It was just a singular tent and the presence of God was right there. David's tent was available for people from other nations that believed that God was God. Jesus said, remember, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. When you you turn God's house into just a place where Americans feel comfortable, you have misunderstood God's house. This is a house for all nations. When you turn God's house into a place where only one race of people feels welcome, you have misrepresented Jesus. His house is a house for all nations. When you turn God's house into a place where only rich people can go or poor people can go or white people or black people are educated or un, you have turned God's house into something it was never meant to be. He said, my house shall be a house for all nations. And when we get to heaven, every race, every nation, every tongue, every tribe, 
We'll see everybody, your mama, your daddy, your cousin, the people you don't want to be there, the people that you didn't think would make it, people on the other side of the world, people with different skin color. Come on, somebody. His house is a house for all nations. This is significant. This is significant because it tells us that God is doing something different. God is transitioning. We serve a God that doesn't change. He transitions. He does, his character does not change, but his methods do. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, but he doesn't always do the same thing. And he doesn't always do it the same way. Moses' tabernacle. Moses' tabernacle was not really a tabernacle defined by worship and by praise and by access. Moses' tabernacle, as a matter of fact, the tabernacle that Moses built was the, the instructions for it were given to him by God from Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the mountain that represents the fear of God. Mount Sinai represents that mountain that's unapproachable. That if you touch it, you, you'll die. That if, even if an animal, the Bible says, touches it, they'll die. What'd the animal do? What'd my puppy do to you, God? He's just that holy. You can't, you can't touch him like that without a king. So, so the tabernacle. So you have two different tabernacles. They're both a house for the ark. Now the ark is important because the ark represented the power of presence protection of God. The, the ark was something that they would take into battle with them and it, it, would, it would guarantee the victory until they took the ark into a battle that God didn't approve of. And the ark was taken. And, and the Philistines got the ark. Now, the Philistines had the ark for about seven months because it kept giving everybody tumors. <laughs> See, I want, I, want to, I want to tell you the difference between I want to tell you the difference between God's friends and God's enemies. The presence of God is a terror to his enemies. But the presence of God is a joy to you. I want you to understand something today. That when people come to a church and they say, man, I felt the presence of God like I never had before. I want you to understand what you're, what you're seeing and what you're sensing is a God who calls you friend. A God who is welcoming you. Come on, somebody. Listen, you are welcome into his presence. God's presence should only be a terror to his enemies. Now, okay, so the presence of God. Now, it was taken. The Philistines had it. They, one time they put it in, into a, a place where they kept one of their gods, Dagon. It was half fish, half man. And they kept coming in, and every morning that's, that, that God had kept falling on its face in front of the ark. Fallen on, and then it falls the last time and it crumbles into pieces. Isn't that amazing? So they just can't take it. They get rid of it and they send it back to the people of God. Well, it finds it in the, it in, it, it's, it, it rests in a couple different places, but it finds its place in Gibeon. And now Gibeon is about five miles outside of Jerusalem. And so during Saul's reign as king, Saul never inquires of the ark. He never goes after the presence of God. He never goes after it. But they are still offering sacrifice. They're still going through the rituals of the temple. And there's no ark behind the veil. They're doing all kinds of religious activity, but there's no presence. They're, they're, they're doing all of the, all of the traditions. They're, they're following all of the rules and doing all of the stuff, but there's no, pre they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Listen to me. I'm thankful for the traditions and I'm thankful for communion. I'm thankful for all of the things that we do concerning church, but let's never be a church that goes through all of the motions, but we're void of the presence of God. For almost 20 years, they're doing this. 
And when Saul's reign ends, David becomes king. One of the first things that David wants to do as king is he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of God. Well, not really back into the city of God because it had never really been in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had always been occupied by other nations, but God's city had finally become God's city because of David. And, and, And what I love about David is David... David planted a seed in God's city before God's city ever became God's city. Because years before that, when David killed Goliath, the Bible says that David cut Goliath's head off. And when he cut Goliath's head off, he took it to where? He took his head all the way into Jerusalem and he buried his head there as a seed for God's city. I want you to, I want you to know something today. Sometimes you need to go ahead and take today's victory and declare that God is going to give you something, not just, what you, not just what you took today, but he's got more for you in the future. Is there anybody in the room today that believes that today's victory is only a picture of more victories and more, possess- and more land and more territory? God has more for us. So David is, David is, David is excited because he wants to bring the ark back, he wants to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Now, the temple has not been destroyed. The temple is still in Gibeon, and they are still going through all of the motions in Gibeon. But David breaks tradition. Now listen to me. This is, this is, this is, this is a wild story. When David first decides that he wants to bring the presence of God back or into Jerusalem, he goes to get it. And the first time he goes to get it, he, he blows it. First time he goes to get it, he, he, he puts it on a cart with wheels and, and, and the oxen are pulling the cart. And when the oxen stumble and the cart stumbles, Uzzah reaches up to touch the presence of God and, 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 and still... The presence of God, when it's touched by human, just like that mountain you couldn't touch, <laughs> just, just, just like that ark you shouldn't have put your hands on, you still couldn't touch the presence of God. There's still protocol to God's presence, but the traditions have been broken. Watch. So David does some study. He finds out that the ark was meant to be carried, not pulled. And they had put it onto something that they had, they had made with their ingenuity, with their creativity. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you something? I'm thankful for the lights and the screens and the chairs and the air conditioning and all of the ingenuity of man. But we, can't, we have to make sure that we're not carrying the gospel on our ingenuity. Come on. The, the, the ark, the presence, was meant to be carried on the shoulders of, of the Levites. It was meant to be carried on the shoulders. It wasn't something that was meant to be pushed on a cart. It was meant to be carried. It, and, and sometimes people don't want to carry the presence because it's heavy. Sometimes people don't want to carry the presence because it requires something of you. Sometimes people don't want to carry the presence of God because you got to live holy. Sometimes you people don't want to carry the presence of God because you got to be sanctified. Sometimes people don't want to carry the presence of God because it's difficult, but it's worth carrying. And it's the only way you can move it. So David finds out how to move it. But what God isn't specific on is where to move it. So he doesn't take it and put it back behind the veil. David, the Bible says, constructs a tent. And then the Bible says, David goes and he puts on the garment of the priest. David is acting like New Covenant. And anybody that gets a revelation of New Covenant gets New Covenant. I don't, you need to, don't mess with me right now. You need to read the Old Testament. Anybody that sees New Covenant gets New Covenant. Listen, even, even when Jesus was alive, there was a woman that came to Jesus. She said, hey, my daughter is sick. And Jesus said, your time has not yet come. And she, uh, he said, he said, I don't give the food of my people to dogs. And she said, Jesus, even the dogs get some food from who? From the king's table. If you see me correctly, you get what you're asking for. Even when it's not your time. 
And so she pulled into her season something that was meant for another season. This is what David is doing. He's pulling into his season something that was meant for another season. And Israel gets a revelation of God's approachable presence that's for all nations. I, 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 oh my God, I'm so pumped. I just want to preach for six hours more. <laughs> Give me a minute. I'm trying, I'm trying my best. There were, there were massive differences. Both homes for the ark. Both homes for the seat of God's presence. But David bringing the ark back, and the reason he brought it back into the city is because it wasn't just an announcement that the presence is back, but the king is here. David knew, David knew there was a king of kings. David knew that there was a Lord of lords. And so David, when he's bringing the presence of God back, he's dancing around the ark like he's a worshiper, not a king. When you come into the presence of God, you better put your title down. You better put your master's degree down. You better put your doctorate down. You better put all of those things that you think define you and make you somebody special down because everybody is just a worshiper in the presence of God. Come on, somebody give God praise today that he has made us worshipers. Pussy. I'm just a worshiper, man. Even his wife is like, oh, look at the king. He's like, no, I'm a worshiper. You got it twisted. You, were, you thought I was your hope. You thought I was your deliverance. You thought deliverance was going to come from the north or the south or the east or the west. You kept looking up to the hill. You kept looking to the chariots and to the horses. But I'm, I'm telling you this morning, lift up your eyes to the hills from whence comes your help. He, he, he's telling, he says, listen, listen, I'm going to get even more wild than this. Because I'm establishing a new era. I'm breaking tradition. The presence of God is not, not anymore going to be about form and function and duty and rules and regulations. I'm going to put it in a singular tent. Most pictures of that tent have the tent open, not closed. So people could come and look and see what was inside of the tent. And for the first time in human history, men are allowed to look at the presence of God. They couldn't touch it. They, could, they couldn't touch it until, until King Jesus came. And when King Jesus came, the Bible says in John 1 that the, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And when Jesus walked the earth, men and women from all different backgrounds were able to touch that tabernacle. They were able to touch that ark. They were able to put their hands on that presence. But it took some people who were willing to break tradition to do it. It took a woman who the rules said, you can't touch a holy man. You can't touch a priest. Because when you touch a priest, you make the priest unclean. She had an issue of blood. She was told to stay home. The rule said stay home. Don't go out in public. Don't approach men of God. Don't show yourself to people. But she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, this is, this is Jesus, the tradition breaker. Jesus, the rule breaker. Jesus, the one, the presence that you couldn't touch, now you can touch. You can put your hands on him. He said to Thomas, touch my, touch my hands. Put your hand in my side. Look at, I, I, I want you to know today that the God you serve, he's not at a distance. He's not in some land in the off and yonder. His spirit dwells on the inside. You can touch him and he's touching you. Because in the new, the unclean doesn't make the clean unclean. The clean purifies the unclean. This is what God is doing. He's, he's transitioning. Under Saul, the worship of God was so reduced that Saul started seeking witches. You got Christians running around. What are you? You a Sagittarius? You a, you a Scorpio? You a, what are we talking about? Well, I know the Bible says, but I was reading the other day. This book that my friend, I know what the Bible says, but this book that my friend gave me says that the, the Bible isn't really. Uh, I don't know about all that. 
So David establishes the presence of God in the city of God. The presence of God was so important to the people of God that when Eli heard that the Philistines had taken it, the Bible says Eli fell backwards in his chair and he broke his neck and he died. And then his daughter who was pregnant, she went into labor, she had a baby, she named the baby Ichabod. The word Ichabod means that the glory of God has departed. This is how valuable the presence of God was to the people of God. Nowadays it's just like, ah, do I need to go to church? Do I, do I need community? Do I, do I need to read his word? Do I need to pray? Do I need to worship? What? Moses said, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, we aren't moving. Just before that, God had promised him everything. He said, I'll give you provision. I'll give you protection. I'll give you, I'll give you the land. But God said, I'm not going with you. Moses said, I don't want any of that stuff if you're not involved. I don't want money. I don't want houses. I don't want stuff. I don't even want protection if it's not your protection. So David institutes a a new style of relating to the presence of God. Yes, David was a king, but God is the king of kings. Can God trust you with promotion? When you get glory, will you still want his? The ark rested behind that curtain. Israel had been worshiping for 20 years in a temple void of his presence. All of the ceremonies, the sacrifices meant nothing because God wasn't there. When David brings the ark back, what did it signify? Signified that Moses' tabernacle is where God was. David's tabernacle is where God is. I don't want to be where God was. I want to be where God is. When they went to the cross looking for, or to the, to the grave looking for Jesus, the angel said, why are you looking here? You're looking for the living among the dead. Why do we keep going back to dead things when we have a living savior, a living king? Why do we put our hope in man-made systems of government when we have a king who has a kingdom, who has a rule, a realm, a people, a nation? Why? Why? Because some people love their tradition more than they love God. Some people love their denomination more than they love God. Some people love their rules more than they love God. They hated Jesus because he was opposed to their rules. I don't know if this is significant or not, but it's fact. Jesus was 30 years old when he began his ministry. His disciples were all probably under 30. There's possibility that Peter was the closest to Jesus's age because the Bible says that he was married. He, but there, but most, of them, most of them were probably mid-20s, possibly late teens. When most of the kids who would follow a, a master or a religious teacher, they were about 13 or 15 years old when they were released to follow their masters and to be taught by a rabbi. Jesus, by many, was considered just a teacher. So they would follow him. So the point is, Jesus was young. His disciples were young. If you really look at history, history has been shaped by so many young people. Doesn't mean that God can't use you when you're old. It's just when you're old, you have to be willing to leave your man-made tradition. And young people are so much less married to their way of doing things. February is Black History Month and we celebrate the contributions of black men and women throughout our history. Black history is American history. You can't tell the story of my history and our history of, of, as a nation without black men and women. We have no history without them. None. 
And some of the greatest contribute, contributors to the way things are today were young. Martin Luther King Jr. was 39 years old when he was killed. 39, I'm 42. I feel like I'm just getting started. Yeah. 39 years old when he was killed. And when he was alive, many of the people who celebrate him now and who love him now would have hated him back then. He had about a 30% approval rating when he was alive. Now if you ask people about Martin Luther King Jr., oh, he's great, love him. Then they hated him. And not only did white people hate Martin Luther King Jr., black people did too. Because to many in their culture, he was making too much noise. He was causing too much trouble. He was bringing too much attention. And there are people who love things to just keep going the way they are more than they want change. They'd just rather settle for things the way they are. And so we just leave it alone because don't rock the boat too much. Don't push back against man's tradition. Fall in line. Do what they say. The worst thing you can do to your sons and daughters is force them to be just like you. So we don't fight the next generation, we celebrate the next generation. Because out of the next generation come the people who are gonna change all of these issues that we find such a struggle for us. We can't even come together over whether racism still exists in America or not. How are we gonna fix the problem that we don't even really believe exists? We need to release the next generation to do what we were unable to do, to say what we were unable to say. They're Davids. They're tradition breakers that bring revival to nations. And we can't resist them just like they rejected, they rejected and they resisted Jesus and they missed the day of their visitation. You keep looking at the young generation sideways and you'll miss the day of your visitation. People that looked at our transition and said, I can't submit to a 35-year-old man. I can't, I can't, I, I, you, you can't, you can't make a 30. I, my pastor's 60 years old. You can't, you can't give me a 35-year-old pastor. You know what you miss? You missed the day of your visitation. You missed it. When you refuse transition, you refuse what is next. And God is saying, I have something that is next for you. Stop holding on to your traditions. It's time for some of us to let go and let the next generation take the lead. Let them begin to speak. Let them begin to talk. Let them begin to have influence and impact and, and input. Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman was born, I believe, in 1819. In 1849, she got free. She escaped. And then in 1850, she's 31 years old. 31 years old, she becomes a conductor on the Underground Railroad system. At 31 years of age, she is going back and forth from state to state, rescuing slaves. Sometimes going all the way up into Canada and back. She, wor she worked for the military as a spy. All of this she did in resistance to tradition and law. Come on. In 1850, when she became a conductor, a law was passed that you cannot help slaves that escape. Thank God that Harriet Tubman bucked the tradition, yeah. disobeyed that man-made evil law, and did what was right in the sight of God. To tell me abortion's wrong, I'm a child of God, I know it is. And while you're sitting back waiting on somebody to declare evil is evil, I already know it is. I'm a child of God, my heart's already been changed. Yeah. Sitting around just waiting, oh, it's, 
When's somebody going to change the law? When's somebody going to legislate morality? When's somebody going to make people do what's right? When's somebody going to say the king is here? The king is here. The king is here. His kingdom is here. Let's win people to Jesus. Let's get them a brand new heart that's made of flesh that desires to do the will of God. Are laws important? Absolutely. They teach us, but all the law can do is show us that we're wrong. It cannot rehabilitate us. All the law does, the New Testament says, the law, all it did was increase the trespass. Every time you make a new law, you just make more sinners. I know this because every one of you, except for probably Ron the Baptist, every one of you break the speed limit every day. And you, you, know, you, you know how to do it too because you're like, if I just go six to seven miles over the speed limit, ain't no police officer going to waste his time and pull me over for six to seven miles over the speed limit. And this is why we've missed Jesus, because we keep coming to church wanting to know what line we can walk up to and dangle over. Instead of asking, God, change my heart so I don't even walk up to the line, so I don't even go there, so I don't even. Yeah, do I want some laws to change? Absolutely. But I want heart change more than anything. Yeah. I, I, I don't need a law to tell me what is good and what is evil. I've already got God's law written on the, my heart and it doesn't matter what America says. Killing of the unborn is still wrong. Doesn't matter what America says. Doesn't matter that there was a day in America where slavery was legal. Doesn't matter that they made it illegal. It doesn't matter. All of that doesn't really matter to the believer because before it was made illegal, it was already illegal to you. So as a Christian, we... Remember, our weapons, they're not carnal. They're not fleshly. But they're mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. If we would start pulling down strongholds instead of posting our opinions, we could see transformation. But we're too busy looking for another king. Let's not miss Jesus. Let's not miss the day of our visitation. Will you stand with me? They told the disciples, they said, we command you. They were preaching in the name of Jesus and people were getting saved and delivered. And they were mad. They, they thought they'd crucified Jesus. They just multiplied Jesus. Come on. And they said, you guys got to stop running around preaching in the name of Jesus. You can do whatever you want, but stop saying the name of Jesus. And I love the apostles. They said, listen to us. We love you. We appreciate you. We respect you. But there comes a moment where we have to obey God and not man. Stop. Stop talking about Jesus. No, I'm sorry. It's too late. Stop calling people to revival. No, I'm sorry. It's too late. Stop calling people to repentance. No, I'm sorry. It's too late. Stop believing God for change in our culture and in our society. And in, no, no you, you've come too late. I'm a tradition breaker. I break the traditions that have been holding people back. Yeah. I break them. I break them off of your life. Yeah. I break them. That's what we're called to do. So, Father, in Jesus' name, help us to be tradition breakers. Help us to not get so settled in our ways that we miss you. Help us, God. You're faithful. You're faithful. You can do this. You are doing this. You are faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. amen. One more thing about David's tent. Is that okay? We still got five and a half hours. It's all good. <laughs> One more thing about David's tent. The Psalms were not really meant to be read. So Psalms 23, 
the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It was not really meant to be read. It was meant to be sung. And most of these songs, you'll see the chief musician, the chief musician, you'll see David, you'll see different writers. Many of these psalms were written at David's temple, David's tent. Think about, think about this picture for a moment. Think about David, who was not from the tribe of Levi, who would never in his life, if it hadn't transitioned, he would have never been able to step into the presence of the ark. Never. But David is now in the presence of the ark, and he sings songs like this. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. This is a revelation David would have never gotten from Moses' tabernacle. Because not only is David singing about things that are in his heart, David is singing about things that he's seeing. So when David says the shadow of the Almighty, David, I can picture David as the sun is setting over that tent and the shadow comes across him and he's sitting in the shadow of the of the ark of God. And in there is, the, is the, the ark of God and on top of it are two winged cherubim. Can you see it? As he sings and he's looking at the ark of God and he says, he that dwells in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow. He's literally sitting in the shadow of God's presence. This is what God wants for you. Proximity, closeness, nearness. I don't care how far you feel away from God today. He's inviting you to the shadow of his wings. Is there anybody in the room today that's grateful that I don't have to stand under the shadow of my disappointment? I don't have to stand under the shadow of my failure. I don't have to sit under the shadow of my shame. I don't have to sit under the shadow of what I've done and what I've been. I can sit under the shadow of his wings. So Father, again, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your word changes for your glory. If there's anybody in this room today under the sound of my voice and you want to give your life to Jesus, you want to make a decision to follow Jesus today, maybe it's for the first time or you're coming back to God, we want to offer you that opportunity today because I, I believe today is the day of salvation. Your king is here. <laughs> the king is here. The king is here. And he wants you to come into the kingdom. So if that's you, I'm going to count to three. And when I do, what you're saying is, I need forgiveness of my sin and I want, I, want, I want relationship with Jesus today. That'll change my life. So when I count to three, all I want you to do is throw your hand up in the air and we're gonna pray with you and we're gonna believe in that moment. God is gonna supernaturally change your life forever. The old is gonna be gone. The new is going to come. One, two, three. Throw that hand up in the air. I see you, I see you, I see you, I see you. Keep it up, throw it up real high so I can see you. Come on, throw it up. See you, anybody else? Throw it up, throw it up real high. I see you, sir. Anyone else? Anyone else? So awesome. Come on, church, let's pray this prayer together. Let's pray that, dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. You gave your life for me. I give you my life. Take it all, have your way. Use me for your glory. I repent of my sins. I confess you as Lord. Thank you for loving me. I love you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Come on, maybe one more time we can put our hands together for those that made that decision today. Hey. Hey, I know, I know we've been here for a minute, but we went through a lot to get here to this moment. And uh, so I want to pray for those who graduated our growth track last week. 38 new people became a part of Calvary Church last week. So we want to just thank God for them and pray with them. If that's you, would you throw your hand up in the air? You became a part of Calvary just recently. We're so thankful for you. Your family. So grateful for that. So let's do this. If you saw someone that lifted your hand, their hand, just turn and stretch your hand towards them. We want to pray for them today. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you 
The Bible teaches that every joint supplies. That means that every person that comes into this space has a purpose. You got a plan for them. They're not here to just fill an empty seat, but there is purpose for them. There is purpose that was waiting for them. There was something you designed for them from the foundation of the earth that when they stepped into this place, they stepped into it. And so we ask you to help us, to help them to be everything that you have called them to be. Help us to be a church that prays for them and with them. Help us to be a church that cares for them, weeps when they weep, rejoices when they rejoice. Help us to understand that community and fellowship with the saints is so necessary in the day we live in. The Bible teaches that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some do, but in the last days we should do it all the more. We need each other now more than we ever have. No wonder the enemy's fighting us. No wonder the enemy's trying to divide us into different parties and political persuasions, but we are united we are united under the name and the banner that is Jesus Christ. We put down all of our titles. We put down all of our positions. When we, when we step into this arena, when we, when we partake of this community, we, we lay it all down at the feet of Jesus. We put our crowns down. We lay it all down so that we can serve one another in the name of Jesus. Thank you for it. Bless their kids. Bless their family. Bless them. May the blessing that is on this house overflow into their homes, into their into their rooms and into their spaces. Give them influence for your name. Use them for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Now the altar's open. If you, if you need to leave, you gotta go get ready for the Super Bowl that's in five hours. You know, I understand. Know how it is. Parties and stuff. But if you want prayer for anything, we'd love to meet you up front. We've got a prayer team who would love to meet with you. God bless you. Thank you for coming. We'll see you very soon.